So, today, I'm going to attempt to talk about grace, <laughs> because um, grace is such a huge, far-reaching, deeply theological topic, um, characteristic of God that feels honestly like it's way over my pay grade, to tell you the truth. So, I'm going to be honest with you today, I'm just going to cover a few things, a couple different aspects. Just take a look at grace from a couple different angles. And um, as I prepared this, I realized, like, Brie, if that's the way you're feeling, like that this is over your head, then you obviously need to read or listen to a sermon about grace. So <laughs> it should minister to me um, as I give it to. So I just want to start with uh, some basic, just a simple definition and some clarification about what grace is. So this first part of... Uh, the teaching, I relied pretty heavily on one of my favorite teachers, Derek Prince. If you don't know who that is, he's amazing, and um, <clears throat> anytime I feel like I've received any kind of revelation, I often go check it against what he says, <laughs> just to check myself. So I really liked the way he defined it and the way he explains grace. Um, this is the definition he came up with for the word grace. Grace is the free, unmerited favor of God toward the undeserving and the ill-deserving. So a couple things to point out about this definition. First of all, is that it's free. So when something is free, that means it can be earned. It's a gift. And uh, the next thing to point out is that even, uh, it's not just for those that are undeserving, it's for the ill-deserving. So even when we deserve punishment, even when we deserve ill, out of his grace, God gives us good. Another word for grace uh, in the word, is favor. Favor is another way to say grace, so that's a word that we encounter a lot for grace. Um, just to give you some background, the Greek word for grace, which I can't pronounce correctly because it's one of those CH words, it's charis, but it's like charis, you know. And the Hebrew word for it is also a CH word, hen. So charis basically means beauty or attractiveness, and hen also means beauty. So put them together, beauty and attractiveness. So there's this common phrase in the Old Testament, and the phrase is to find favor or grace in the eyes of someone. We see that a lot in the Old Testament. And um, we also hear this saying in culture, uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's kind of the same explanation with grace. Grace is also in the eye of the beholder. God's grace has to do with the way that he chooses to look at us. It originates with him. Again, it doesn't originate with us or our merit. It comes from him, and it's the way he chooses to look at us. When God looks at us with favor, grace operates in our lives. An example of this, again, this is the, what Derek Prince used to kind of show you how grace functions, and I really like this explanation. Um, it's Numbers six twenty-two through 26. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons, This is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. So you can see here that grace is sandwiched between two sections of language that talk about the face of the Lord. It says that he makes his face shine on you. He's gracious to you. 
and he turns his face toward you. So again, that's just putting the emphasis on grace. God's grace has to do with the way that he looks at us. And again, if you follow that even further, it says turn his face towards you and give you peace. So peace only comes through grace. Um, That's how we receive peace is because of his grace. Um, Another example of this, the function of it, is Exodus 2, verses 23 through 25. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So you can see here that it says that God looked on the Israelites. He looked on their predicament. So again, he turns his face toward them. And um, as he does that, his grace starts to operate and their deliverance, he brings about their deliverance because he hears their cry. So that's just some basic definitions of what grace is, what it looks like, and what the function of grace looks like in our lives. Sometimes it's helpful when we're trying to understand a concept like God's grace, to talk about it in terms of what it's not, or to talk about it in terms of what its opposite is. So if we're going to do this with grace, um, it's helpful to talk about works, because those two exclude each other. So just to clear up any misconceptions, first of all, I will just state the way in which righteousness comes. I will just tell you the truth, and then we'll talk about, we'll uh, break that down a little bit. So grace versus works is the great debate about how righteousness or right standing with God is attained. So here we see Romans three twenty three through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So you can read through that and you can clearly see righteousness only comes through grace by faith and there is no other way. So that's the clear definition of how we attain righteousness. Is it by our works? No, it is not. It is free, and it comes by grace through faith. So Paul spends so much time in the New Testament driving this point home. A lot of time. He talks a lot about Jewish ceremonial laws. He talks a lot about circumcision. That is oftentimes how he juxtaposes grace and works, as he uses Jewish ceremonial law versus faith. Just faith. Um, And uh, Galatians 2 tells about a confrontation between Paul and Peter regarding table fellowship, which was another Jewish ceremonial law thing. Um, We don't really understand, you know, because we're just used to sitting at a table with whoever. uh, But it was a big deal who you shared a table with and who you ate with. If you look back and remember uh, the Pharisees accusing Jesus of basically impropriety because he would eat with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and all of that. Um, And they really looked down on that. So who you table fellowship with in Jewish culture is a really big deal. 
So there's this confrontation between Peter and Paul regarding table fellowship, and it stems from that same place as circumcision. So I'll just go to this. This is, um, uh-oh. There we go. So this is a different translation. Um, this translation is written by N.T. Wright. I don't know if you know who that is, but he's um, just a Greek scholar, and he has um, translated the New Testament um, on his own. And I just really like the way that this um, explains things. So it says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, this is Paul talking, I stood up to him. He was in the wrong. Before certain persons came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself because he was afraid of the circumcision people. The rest of the Jews did the same, joining him in his play acting. Even Barnabas was carried along by their sham. But when I saw that they weren't walking straight down the line of gospel truth, I said to Cephas in front of them all, Look here, you're a Jew, but you've been living like a Gentile. How can you force Gentiles to become Jews? We are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. But we know that a person is not declared righteous by works of the Jewish law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah. So what Paul is saying here, basically probably what happened is Peter had spent enough time in Antioch that he had developed habits. He had developed this normal course of what he did. And his normal was to eat with the Gentile believers. Um, because he knew that um, they weren't deficient because they didn't follow the Jewish ceremonial laws. So then people come from James, and they eat at a different table because Gentile believers are still below them for not practicing the Jewish ceremonial laws regarding eating. And then Peter acts as a hypocrite. He knows the truth that Jewish and Gentile believers are both justified by faith in Jesus and are part of one family on that basis. If you remember in Acts 10, God directly addresses this with Peter. He shows him this vision of the sheet with all these animals on it. And he says to Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, I would never do that. I would never, I've never done anything, eaten anything unclean. And God was trying to prepare him for this very thing. He's saying... Don't call unclean what I have made clean. And Peter still has this, he still stumbles over the stumbling block. And uh, he knows that adherence to Jewish laws is not part of salvation, but he acts like it because of that pressure from the circumcision group, and it leads others astray by communicating that there's something deficient about the Gentile believers and that they need to follow ceremonial Jewish law in addition to having faith in Jesus, to be truly righteous. So Paul is saying, I know that you don't believe this. He's calling him out because I've watched what you've been doing. You know that this isn't a part of salvation. I know that you know it. Not that these guys are here. You're acting like it is. So what's it going to be? And uh, I'm so, it's, this is a big deal. It's not just a matter of differing convictions or... Um, preferences. It's the crux of what the gospel is. It's the question, is it by works or is it by faith? And I mean, it, it, in that is the heart and the integrity of the message of the gospel. So Paul discerned, oh, I have to confront this immediately. 
because this is very, very important. I mean, Peter is a major leader in the church, and he's communicating this, and others are following him. It's just so important. And I'm so glad that he did confront it because who knows where we would be now. I mean, we'd be standing on our head on top of a speckled goat saying some some sort of weird law. But um, Paul knows that the heart of the gospel is at stake. And there's a couple points here to be made. Grace and works exclude each other. It can only, righteousness can only come by one. It can only come by grace or it can only come by works of the law. Um, in Galatians 2.21. In Galatians 2.21 it says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if a righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So Paul says there, you can't have one and the other. Because if you could, by your own merits and by your flesh, through the works of the law, attain righteousness, then there was no reason for Christ to die. Okay, so that's not the way that you do it. It comes by faith. And uh, James tells us in uh, chapter 2, verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So in order to obtain righteousness through the law, you have to uphold the whole law all the time. You cannot do that. No one could ever do that. The only one who has walked that walk is Jesus. And uh, that's how he was the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. And now his righteousness is imputed to us by grace through faith in him. There's no other way to receive it. We cannot be good enough to be righteous and measure up to the righteousness of God. And uh, Peter, you know, who, I mean, we're constantly learning from because Peter's humanness is always on display. And one thing I love about him is that no matter the mistakes he makes, he always comes back. You know, he humbles himself and he admits it. And it often happens in public, bless his heart. Um, So later on, and uh, from what I could tell, most people believe that uh, the Jerusalem Council happened in... uh, after this confrontation with Paul. So this is in Acts 15, 6 through 11. Let's read it. It says, this is, um, they all met to basically talk about this issue of do we have to have Gentile believers following Jewish ceremonial laws to, to be a part of the family of God? They're meeting to discuss this very issue. Uh, so Acts fifteen six through 11 says, The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. So 
Peter comes forth after he's been confronted by Paul, and I'm sure that was embarrassing, and he faces these people down, and he says, no, we could not bear that yoke. I mean, it was tremendous. We could not bear that. We could not measure up. Why would you try to put that yoke on these Gentile believers after Jesus came to take that away? Why would you do that? So clearly, we can see that righteousness is by faith. So I wanted to make a little bit of a current application with this, because today in our church, we're not sitting here amongst a bunch of Jewish believers and Gentile believers. So you might wonder, how does this apply to me today? So one question I think that we should all ask ourselves, that's valuable to ask yourself is, do you have any practices in your life that you believe render you more acceptable, acceptable to God than your brother? Because the both of you are justified by the same faith. You both have received the same righteousness from Jesus. Do you think that by your practices, you can improve on the righteousness of Jesus? You should really ask yourself that. Because if you think you can, that's a problem. That is really a problem. So let's say that you have a ton of the Bible memorized. Or that you have been on all these crazy missions. You have... Uh, Preach the gospel to so many people. And your brother in Christ hasn't. I mean, do you look down on him for that? Because you're not justified by those things. You're justified by, the, justified by the same faith that he is. And when you start to go down that path of self-righteousness, here's what you do. You convert people to your version of righteousness. You don't convert them to Jesus through whom is their eternal salvation. You convert them to people that are really great at memorizing the Bible or people that are really on fire for missions, which, hey, that's great, but that is not what justifies you. And that is a dangerous path to take. Don't convert people to your practices that you think make you righteous. You preach the gospel, and that's what makes people righteous. You don't add anything to faith as a requirement for salvation. Another thing that Paul often does in his letters is he says, I know where you're going to go with this. Are you going to try to abuse God's grace? Are you going to try to use grace as an excuse for you to indulge your flesh? And he, he does this thing he calls making a human argument, where he says something that he knows is ridiculous, but he's using it to make a point. And his point is, grace is not an excuse for sin. It's not permissive. That is not the nature of grace. If you want to abuse the grace of God so you can indulge your flesh, you are dangerously misinformed about who God is and what his grace is for. <laughs> there is no loophole that you have found in God's plan where you're just like, oh, I found it. I can do whatever I want, and I can still fellowship with God. No, you can't. You are still going to play by his rules. You will find that out soon enough. Don't you know? Don't you realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness is not meant for you to just go do whatever you want and do what feels good and get away with it. That's just nonsense. So that's my human argument about how grace is not cheap. So that would bring us to Kind of the next point that I want to talk about in juxtaposing grace with things. 
which is justice. God's justice. All right. Romans 3, 4. So this is another one of those arguments that Paul is making where he's saying, so God is so righteous and our righteousness is by him. So then wouldn't our sin and our unrighteousness then just glorify God and point out his righteousness more? And this is Paul saying, no, you haven't found a loophole. That is not the case. So he says, of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. As the scriptures say about him, you will be proved right in what you say, and you will win your case in court. So whenever I think of justice, including the justice of God, I'm trying to find my picture of scales. Oh, I just can't see it. Um, whenever I think of justice, I um, often picture scales. And I was thinking about scales and that it might be of some value to just talk about how they work, first of all. And this is just my memory from high school science lab because we use scales a lot there. So on one side of the scale, you would put a weight, a weight that is objective. It is basically the representation of true weight. On this weight, you see a value. It's assigned a value. And you put that on the left side of the scale. And on the right side of the scale, you put an object that you want to determine its weight value. And you weigh it against the true value. So that's basically how scales work. And uh, mankind, left to our own devices, we live this lie. And in our pride, left to our own devices, we think that with God's righteousness on the left side of the scale, that we can climb up into the right side of the scale and somehow balance that. That we could balance the scales with God's righteousness and our own power. That's really what man believes. That's the pride of life, right? And there's even some that go so far to think that they could climb up in that scale with God's righteousness and tip it in their favor. They would think that in themselves, they have more substance than God's righteousness. That there's something in them in which they can bring an indictment against God and say, no, you are wrong. And that is just not the case. And it sounds scary, but it's something that we should be so thankful for. Just the security of God's justice. That he's objective in his justice. And that he's always right. And that it's perfect. It's really a comfort for us. And it really, that whole, a human being climbing into the scale and thinking that they can judge God, bring an indictment against God. It reminds me of Daniel chapter 5, when Daniel um, is talking to Belshazzar about um, what God is saying. And <laughs> through Daniel, God says this, Instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, but you have failed to glorify the God who holds in his hand your very breath and all your ways. You have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. That is a terrible proposition to try to get up into that scale on your own, on your own merit. It will never, ever work. So Psalm 62.9 says, Surely the lowborn are but a breath, the highborn are but a lie. 
If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together, they are only a breath. That's what happens to the scales when you try to get in them with God and his righteousness. It amounts to nothing. It's just that emphasis again that apart from Jesus, in us, there is no substance that even comes close to measuring up to God's righteousness and justice. They're but a breath. The scale goes up. God's side goes down because he is of so much more substance than we could ever be on our own. And this is inclusive of all human beings. All of the glory and merit of human beings is lighter than air in comparison to God's righteousness and justice. It has no chance of balancing those scales. The only solution to satisfying God's justice is Jesus. By faith, he's the substitution for us. He's the only one that can measure up and balance the scales. And when we take on the righteousness of Jesus, we see a different side of God's justice because justice isn't just about punishing the wrongdoer and the lawbreaker. Justice is also about rewarding the righteous. And that is a beautiful prospect when we look at God's justice as believers, as people that have accepted Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross. We just can revel and stand in awe at, at God's justice. Proverbs twenty-one fifteen: When justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but a terror to the evildoers. So again, it's our joy that God is just because he's going to reward those who are righteous and who are just before him. So all of this stuff is pretty... It seems kind of heady, right? It seems like it's all just theological terms and it's kind of over our head, and, but it's really not. The last point I want to make about grace is that it's very practical. I want to make the point that God's grace is sufficient. It is always sufficient for us. It's obviously sufficient for us to cleanse us and to bring us back into fellowship. His grace is sufficient for us to have reconciliation with him and enter back into that fellowship through Jesus that we have before sin. But it's also sufficient for us in the day-to-day of our lives. Being born again isn't the last time we encounter God's grace. There's an abundance of grace for us, just like John 1.16 says, for from Christ's fullness we have all received grace upon grace. There's an abundance of it for us, and we'll encounter it in our everyday earthly plane for the rest of our lives, and it's sufficient for all of our troubles. So I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. This is Paul talking. Um, He's talking about this thorn in his flesh, which there's some argument as to what the thorn was, but for today's teaching, it doesn't really matter. Um, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I'm so, so thankful that Paul shared that with us because it's such an encouragement and it's such an acknowledgement of what we go through while we're here on this earthly plane. You know, we know that we're going to have hardships and things aren't always going to be perfect, but in our weakness, we 
are strong. We can manifest the power of God because we can't do it on our own. So where is it coming from when people see it? It's coming from the Lord. And uh, another one that just points out the same concept is Isaiah 40, 28 through 31. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They'll soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And part of this verse that always stands out to me is, even youths will grow tired and weary. And um, I just think about the energy that I had in my youth. <laughs> and uh, I'm surprised no one laughed when I just said that, because everybody's always like, you're such a kid. Um, but I definitely have less energy than I used to. And I just think even at that point in my life, when I was more full of vigor than I am now, even that amount of energy and vitality, it fails you. You know, all of our human ability will eventually fail us. And when we partake in God's grace, instead of relying on our own strength, we bring him glory. His power is displayed for all to see. When you've come to the end of yourself, you're right where you need to be. Because our strict human ability will always fail us. But when we find, we find the hope that grace brings, we rejoice in our weaknesses. So Paul talking again, this is 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12. He talks about having this treasure in jars of clay. Jars of clay are fragile, right? They break easily. You wouldn't take something super, super valuable and put it in a jar of clay because it just wouldn't be a very good protection for it. But God does that with us so he can manifest his power and his glory through us because it's not dependent on us. And as we surrender and yield to him and trust in him, then we get to glorify him because he works through us and his strength. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive, are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So when you feel like you're up against something that's so difficult that it's just killing you, congratulations, the life of Jesus gets to be manifested through your body. <laughs> that's the way it works. That's the way he set it up. You, you have to depend on him. It's a beautiful thing. There's no loopholes, and I love that about him. He's just made it so perfect. You know, he presents this to you. This is the way that we're going to do it. You get to participate in this with me. It's just such a gift that we get to do that with him. And sometimes we're in hardship and it doesn't go away. Has anyone ever experienced that? That you are in hardship and it doesn't go away and things aren't perfect and you, it's just hard and it, there's nothing, it doesn't feel like there's anything redeeming about it. It doesn't feel like it's doing anything good for you. It just feels gross and terrible and you just want out. <laughs> Sometimes that happens. And it makes me think of the death and the suffering of Jesus. With the death of Jesus and his suffering, the world perceived weakness. They perceived weakness. 
They thought it was absurd. Death on a cross, really? This is the best your Savior could do, was death on a cross. This is his plan. To the world, that is contemptible. They think it's ridiculous. I mean, they spent so much time saying, oh, let's see if he does this. Let's see if he saves himself. He says he's this. He says he's that. And uh, they mocked him for it. It was contemptible to them. They saw it as weakness. And people and the enemy will do the same thing to you when you are in hardship. He will condemn you. And he'll tell you that you're not looking very triumphant today. You're not looking much like a winner, are you? And he will mock you for it. And sometimes people will participate in that with him. Even people in the church. You know, there's this implication that if you're struggling, if you're having some kind of hardship, that there's something wrong with you. And that is just icky. It's so icky. You know what it does? It isolates people from the very thing that they need most. You know, they need the Lord and they need the fellowship and the support of their fellow believers. Don't isolate people like that. He'll question your sonship. He'll say, you should be able to fix this if you are who you say you are. And if that's the case for you, I just want you to know you are not alone. The suffering and death of Jesus was contemptible to the world, but in the sight of God, it was more honorable than all the victories of the most powerful kings. It was the true show of strength. The true show of the power of God. It's just amazing to me. And the world saw it as weakness. So when I see a person persevering and enduring in the midst of hardship, when it's not going away, when they don't seem to be getting deliverance, when they're just still struggling, when I see someone persevering and relying on the Lord in the midst of hardship, bearing the fruit of the Spirit in difficult circumstances, it witnesses to me just as much as deliverance from those circumstances would. It is just as spiritual. It is just as supernatural to endure and to persevere when you're struggling with something. Don't let anyone, Debbie Downer, you, <laughs> because you are struggling. You stick with the Lord, and through his grace, you will still bear fruit for him. You will bring glory to his name, even when you're in this place of struggle. It doesn't mean you're taken out of the game. You can still bear fruit for him. It's every bit as supernatural. I mean, we don't have to develop a martyr complex and just go looking for suffering. But I just want you to know, if you find yourself in that place, that his grace is sufficient for that. His grace is sufficient for you to say that even though I am hard-pressed on every side, I'm not crushed. You can say, even though I'm perplexed, I understand. You can say, you're not in despair. Even though you're persecuted, you can say, I'm not abandoned. When the enemy comes to you and says, why is this happening to you? I don't know. I may be perplexed, but I have not been abandoned because I am not going to be forsaken. The Lord has told me that he is never going to leave me or forsake me. So you can stop condemning me and accusing me of not being a son. If you find yourself in that place, his grace is sufficient for you. The last thing I wanted to uh, share with you guys today is um, it's this great poem. Um, it's by Annie Johnson Flint, and uh, she was a hymn writer. And um, when I listened to Ravi Zacharias, he talks about her a lot. She had um, really a life of suffering, uh, a very, very, very difficult life. But in the midst of all of her suffering, she had she was crippled at the end of her life. It was it, she had a hard life, 
Even in the midst of all of that, she wrote these beautiful hymns about God's grace and his goodness to her. And she was just always so thankful. And I love this, and I'll close with this. It's a, a poem she wrote called, He Giveth More Grace. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. Let's pray. Lord, we just, words of thankfulness just feel so inadequate, Lord. You've done so much. It was at such a high cost to you, but you still gave it. You made a way for us to come back to you, and you love us, and you want that fellowship with us, and it's just so precious that you want to work through us, that you want to glorify yourself in us, Lord. Help us to surrender ourselves to that every day, to surrender ourselves to however you want to work through us, Lord, to offer ourselves to you because that's all we have. So we just open our hands to you, Lord, for you to use everything that we have for your glory, for your kingdom, Lord. We thank you so much for your grace, so much for your love toward us, Lord. It is very, very precious. Help us never to take it for granted, Lord, but to extend it to others just as we've been given to give unto others, Lord. We love you and thank you for everything. In Jesus' name.